Good morning, everybody. So we're continuing our Advent series. And last week, Richard spoke from John's Gospel about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's quite a tough one to follow. It's one of the richest, most beautiful passages in the entire Bible, I think. And the Word is central, the Alpha, the Omega, the core of everything we believe. So no pressure today, Um, but I'll give it a go. Um, If you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to start at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we start with a man, Joseph, being betrothed to a young woman, Mary. Now, betrothed is a peculiar word. Has anyone else used the word betrothed this week at all? No. Um, And I think that's reflected in the different words that are used in different translations of this passage. So, the translation I've used today is the ESV. That uses the word betrothed. Does anyone have an... An NIV Bible. Pledged to be married in the NIV. Anyone still use the King James Version? Espoused, I think is what the King James uses. Not a word I've ever heard before. And any other words used in any other Bibles? Engaged. But what translation is that, Tony? What heretical translation are you using? No, several translations do use the word engaged, but the word engaged doesn't quite capture the essence of what betrothed means. Because betrothed isn't just a peculiar word, it's, it's quite an unusual concept in 21st century Western culture. If someone is betrothed to another person, it's a much stronger bond than being engaged. Essentially, it means that you're legally committed to marry somebody, but the ceremony and the messy stuff haven't taken place yet. And when I say messy stuff, I mean life together. It's a legal and much more formal bond than an engagement. And this is reflected in the Old Testament laws. Deuteronomy tells us that if a man and a woman lie together when she's betrothed to another man, they should both be stoned. It's equivalent to adultery, even though they're not married yet. So, getting back to our passage today, Let's put ourselves in Joseph's position. You're betrothed to a young woman. You haven't consummated the marriage yet, but you find out she's pregnant. 
How would you feel? How would you react? And, and keep in mind that these were very different times to today. Women had very few rights. Infidelity would not have been tolerated. And even today, I'm certain most of us would feel completely betrayed and most likely very angry. And I'm fairly sure we wouldn't believe an unlikely story about how she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But how does Joseph react? He doesn't lash out. He doesn't drag her before the courts. He's not straight on the phone to Jeremy Kyle or Judge Rinder. He doesn't want to put to put to shame, so he plans to quietly divorce her. And from his perspective, and the perspective of the Old Testament law, he would have been completely justified in a harsher reaction. He must have been devastated, angry, and legally, he was entitled to see a stoned. They did like a good stoning in those days. But this doesn't happen. Joseph reacts calmly. He resolves to divorce her, not publicly, but quietly. And just as an aside, I can't help wondering if Jesus had this in mind when the Pharisees tried to trick him during his ministry. You, you might remember they, they dragged a woman caught in adultery before him, asking if she should be stoned. And he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone and set the woman free. But getting back to Joseph. From Joseph's perspective, Mary does seem to have been unfaithful. Not only that, he would have the burden of providing for another man's child. Not to mention the shame of having an adulterous wife. So he plans to end the marriage, but quietly, in a way that would bring the least shame upon Mary. The thing that strikes me is how slowly and how carefully Joseph is to react to all this. He doesn't lash out straight away. He doesn't react immediately. He seems to take time to think about it and decide what to do. The passage tells us he resolved to divorce her quietly. It tells us he considered these things. And as, as I was reading about this, it made me think of the, some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians, particularly patience, gentleness, self-control. We don't know if Joseph was filled with the Spirit at that time. It doesn't mention anywhere that he is. But it's certainly showing a lot of those gifts. And it made me think about how we react to injustice or perceived injustice in Joseph's case. Do we think about what would be the righteous way to react? Or do we act straight away without thinking? And say or do something unjust ourselves? Do we react to sin against us by sinning ourselves? Do we react, do we react quickly and regret it later? Or do we take time to consider like Joseph? Do we pause and think about the righteous way to react when we've been wronged? So Joseph's mulling it all over as he drifts off to sleep and an angel appears to him in a dream and explains what's going on. The angel explains the child is from the Holy Spirit and puts Joseph straight about who the child will be. Joseph is to call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And at this point, the writer of the gospel... Matthew steps in to tell us that this was in fulfillment of what God had said through the prophet. And that was, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And 
those words are quoted by Matthew from Isaiah chapter 7. It's a very famous passage in thousands, maybe millions of people hear it every year because it's included as part of Handel's Messiah. Now, biblical Hebrew had a fairly limited vocabulary and words often had two meanings. And the Hebrew word for virgin is a word like that. The word that's translated as virgin in this passage could equally mean young woman in the original Hebrew that Isaiah wrote. The Greek translation that the New Testament authors would have used translates it as virgin rather than young woman. But lots of modern scholars suggest it, it could mean young woman rather than virgin when the word was used in the original Hebrew. And probably thousands of pages of literature have been written arguing over this point. Personally, I have no idea whether Isaiah's young woman was a virgin or not. And actually, I don't think it matters. Matthew, however, clearly intended it to mean virgin when he quoted Isaiah. And we know this from the context. Matthew tells us that Mary became pregnant before she had come together with her husband. But there's another important part of this Old Testament quotation that Matthew drops in. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which, as Matthew tells us, means God with us. This is exciting. Ever since being kicked out of Eden, mankind was trying to get closer to God. First through sacrifices, then Moses came along and met with God on Mount Sinai, and there God told him how to make a tabernacle so that the people could be close to him wherever they were. And of course, Eventually, the tabernacle made way for the temple in Jerusalem. The temple offered the same functions, to offer sacrifices and meet with the Lord. But meeting with the Lord was a difficult business. The Lord is holy. So holy that there was an elaborate process of ritual washing and purification before anyone could even enter the temple. And not everybody was allowed to do it. Only the high priest was allowed to do it. And that was just once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But here we have something new. God has come to us. We don't have to go to any special place or go through any complicated purification rituals to reach God. God has emptied himself of his glory and come to us instead. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when Isaiah wrote those words, over 700 years before Jesus was born, He was writing about a political situation at that time where it looked like Jerusalem was about to be attacked by armies of the northern kingdom and Damascus. The essence of Isaiah's prophecy was to tell the king of Judah that the Lord had not forsaken him. However however bad things looked, the armies of Jerusalem's enemies belonged to the Lord just as much as the kingdom of Judah. And the fact that God chose to reveal this to the king of Judah through a message about a baby isn't so different to his message 700 years later when Jesus was born. God is with you. God hasn't forgotten you. Everything is in God's hands. Things seem bleak, but it's going to be all right. God is with you. Now, the outcome of all this was that Jesus is adopted by Joseph. Jesus, the incarnate word, made flesh dwelling amongst us, adopted by a human father, and a very ordinary human father. 
Why was this adoption even necessary? Why did Jesus need an adopted father at all? Couldn't Mary have just been a single mother? Of course, it was a very different culture then. Mary could have been a single mother, but she would have been completely ostracized, not just by Joseph, but probably even by her own family. It's hard to imagine that happening now, but in those times, Mary and the baby just wouldn't have survived. But there's more than that. The Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah, the future king of Israel, would be from the tribe of Judah. And the tribal rights of an individual specifically those which tell you which of the 12 tribes you belong to, were passed down the father's line. And the word for it is patrilineal, if you like long words. For the baby to belong to a Jewish tribe, he needed to have a father. But why was that important? Couldn't he just be Jewish and not worry about what tribe he belonged to? Well, the first thing is that the Messiah had to be from the tribe of Judah. Going way back to the time of Jacob and his sons, Jacob gave prophecies on his deathbed and his prophecy to Judah was that his line would produce the kings of Israel and ultimately the Messiah. Now, there's a small geographical hitch with this. Mary lived in Nazareth in Galilee to the north of the country, but Judah is in the south. Now, that wouldn't be a problem if it was in modern-day Britain. As we know ourselves thanks to modern transport and modern ways of working. People live anywhere in the country. Beverly's riddled with Southerners. <laughs> and foreigners. <laughs> There's quite a few Scottish folk as well, but I'll leave it for Peter to upset them. You'll notice Marie's not here today. <laughs> um, so it, even though Israel was quite a small country, I suspect it was much more regionalised than modern-day Britain. And I don't know, there probably weren't many Judeans living in Galilee where Mary lived. But the Lord made it happen. Jesus was adopted by Joseph, and therefore legally it was of the tribe of Judah, the very line of Judah. But that wasn't the only Old Testament prophecy about the lineage of the Messiah. It's very clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah must be of David's line, uh, so, the, so they're in a, a tiny backwater town in the north and we need someone from the tribe of Judah who's also of David's line who's prepared to marry a woman carrying a child that's not his and adopt the child as his own. Quite a tall order, but Joseph's our man. But there's, there's a more important thing about adoption that I want to draw out of this passage. And I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 3. Paul didn't like punctuation much, so uh, I, may, I may need to pause for a breath during this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire full possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The gospel is many amazing things, but among them, it's a story of adoption. Matthew's gospel opens with Joseph, a very ordinary man, a carpenter, adopting the son of God. But through the work of that son, as ordinary men, we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. Just as Joseph adopted Mary's baby as his own son, God has done the same for us. We are children of God. That does give us responsibilities. We represent our father as we go about our daily lives. I've heard it described as being ambassadors of God, and I may have used that term myself in the past, but actually we're much more than that. We're children of God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.15 that we should be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our Father has shared his plans with us. We know that everything is under his control and everything will be made good as he unites all of his kingdom on heaven and on earth. We know that he loves us and has forgiven us through the blood of his Son. We have an inheritance much greater than anything material or financial. Our inheritance is to reign with Christ when he returns in glory. In the meantime, let's live as children of the living God. Let's live in step with the Holy Spirit. Lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not because we'll be in trouble if we don't, but because of who we are, children of the living God. During Advent, we tend to spend a lot of time looking back at the first coming of the Lord. When he came as a helpless baby, conceived to an unmarried mother, into a world beset with darkness. Under political and financial pressure from the Roman Empire. And although many Christians today do live under similar or even worse oppression in different parts of the world, we ourselves live relatively comfortable lives. We enjoy a freedom that will be just a dream in the time of first century Israel. But even so, we still live in a time of darkness. We're still subject to temptation and sin, even though it doesn't hold power over us anymore. We still live in a world of division, sexual immorality, greed, Advent is also a time in the traditional church calendar that we should look ahead to the second coming of Christ, the next Advent, when that darkness will be completely defeated. So I want to close this morning by reading from the last chapter of Revelation. Um, So it's chapter 22, 
from verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we leave today and think about Joseph's righteousness and his adoption of Jesus, let's also rejoice in our own adoption as sons and daughters of the living God and live blamelessly and righteously through the blood of Jesus Christ, one day to reign in glory with him. Amen. Um, Would the worship team like to come up? And I'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for the righteousness of Joseph and may he be an example to us of patience, self-control and obedience. Thank you that your son Christ Jesus came to us so that we could experience experience your presence among us, first by the physical presence of the Lord and later by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we are adopted as your children, secure in the knowledge that if, that if you are for us, then nothing can be against us. And Lord, we look forward to the day that you return in, in glory and establish your throne in the midst of your people. Amen.